Uh, so the talk tonight is uh, living, abiding in paradox. Abiding in paradox. And uh, I want to start out a little bit with um, the limited little physics I know. And believe me, you're getting all I know. <laughs> but uh, there are a couple of... Uh, a couple of um, examples in physics, I think, that hold the sense of paradox. One, uh, very nicely, is the sense that you can measure, or you ha- there, there's a way to measure light to see whether it's a wave or a particle. And actually, in college physics, I did just that. And one experiment proves conclusively that it's a wave. And you change the nature of the experiment and you then uh, run light through that. And the second way proves conclusively that it's particles, photons. Now that's fine, except it can't be both. It can't be both. It's physically impossible for something to be both a wave and a particle. The laws just don't merge. And yet, the experiments prove conclusively that it is both a particle if measured in one way and a wave if measured in another way. So how does the mind hold that? How how does the world hold a paradox? How does the world hold a paradox? And here's another one that I like. Around every atom, there are a series of electrons, depending upon the nature of the atom. And each electron has a a, a pair, a match, that spins in the opposite direction of its mate. And they they take an orbit around an, an atom. So one has a spin, say, of positive, and one has a spin of negative. Now, somehow, in an experiment, they took these matching pairs of electrons, and they sent them very, very distant from each other, thousands of miles. And they were able to change the spin of one, say, in New York, and to watch what happened to the spin of the other that was, say, in San Francisco. And when they changed the one in New York, instantaneously, the other changed. Not at the speed of light, which would have been that one communicated to the other to change its spin, but instantaneously, which meant they were the same thing. How does the mind hold a paradox? How does the mind hold a paradox? An observable, incomprehensible set of facts that are completely inconsistent. And Dharma, we enter the world of that paradox. 
In Dharma, we enter the world of incomprehensibility, of, in, of facts that cannot be related to one another. Let me just give you an example of the array of paradox that occurs in Dharma. That we see substantially. We see, when we look out, we see things of substance. There is no question, is there? There is no question. Substance, feel it. Hold it, weigh it, measure it. Things have substance. And yet, as we move quieter, we begin to see the insubstantiality of all things. Now, how does something of substance that can be measured, verified, weighed, also have no substance whatsoever. Inconsistent paradox. I asked everyone in one of those talks here to be radically accountable, to be totally accountable. And yet in the next breath, I talk about the absence of self. How can those two facts possibly coexist? How can complete accountability and no one to be accountable coexist? As I move out of here and as I look at my life, I have to come to terms with the future of what I'm going to be doing. And I have to honor the past that has led me to this place and all of the relationships of the past and present. And yet, at the same moment, we can see, and verifiably so, that there is only now. That time, past, and time, future, is merely an abstraction, has no reality whatsoever, and more importantly, never has. How do we hold that paradox? There will be times in one's practice when we will look out and see the absolute perfection of the imperfect. The absolute perfection where absolutely nothing needs to be changed. And you have Darfur. And you have Iraq. And you have starving children. How does one hold such paradox? Appearance and non-appearance. We have seen also in our practice how thought drives virtually everything in our life, in our sense of image, in the sense of substantiality in the world, 
And yet when we look at a thought, we can't even know it's there. It's, what is it? What is it? So the entering of the world of the paradox, we have to look at this thing. We don't like paradox. The mind wants to take a side. It wants to take a positionality from one of the paradoxes. It wants to take a side. Light is a particle. Light is a wave. And then the debate begins. It's interesting because I was, as I was just thinking about this this afternoon, I really started having insight and I can't, it's not well formed yet, uh, the insight, but it feels as if the conclusions we reach determines the reality of the truth of that moment. The reality is created by the conclusions we fix upon which side we take. If it's a particle, in that moment light is a particle. If we conclude that it's a wave, in that moment light is a wave. That it moves and is formed by our conclusion. For instance, another physical fact of reality is that particles are Proximities, they're vagueness, they're cloud-shaped. They're not points. But we can measure them. We talk about them as points. And when we talk about them as points, particular entities in themselves, everything, everything becomes fixed as a point and entity in itself. Although it's a vagueness, in reality, it can only be measured vaguely. And we don't like the vagueness. We don't like that. We, the mind wants clarity. It wants substantiality. It wants definition. So we begin to see that the conclusions we reach form the basis of the reality and, and this is interesting, the laws that then govern that reality. Now, I'll make this much clearer as we go through examples and I'm going to use two Dharma examples of how reality is formed around the conclusions that we reach and the laws that are are also a part of that conclusion. But first we have to understand how language forms the conclusion of the reality that we, that we are fixed upon. So we need some understanding to get a sense of this. And just, it, as I go through this, there's a reason that I'm going through all this detail. And, Hopefully by the end of the talk it will make sense to you. The effects that words have upon us. The effects that words have upon consciousness. When something is called something, when we use a word to see reality, 
Reality is shaped according to that word. Tree, clock, person, me. And that as soon as we use the word, reality shapes around that word. I. Where there was vagueness prior to the use of that word, there is clarity and definition when we look through that word. I. I. Very clear. Very clear what I has what I mean. What what the I is. Very clear. And when we're quiet, there's vagueness. There's vagueness. We can feel that as well when we're quiet and willing to be quiet. But when we fight the quiet and we want to assert a word on top of the quiet to have definition, then reality forms around that definition. It becomes what the word, how the word holds it. Now it's interesting, you see, because as I mentioned, once we have formed around the world word, then a whole set of laws begin to work in accordance with that definition and that relationship that we have with the thing through the word. Once I take birth, once the sense of I takes birth through the word, through the word, then the set of laws that start working on the sense of I are old age, sickness, and death. I, who have now become something, are then governed by the laws of time. Why am I governed by the laws of time? Because I've used time. This is, stay with me. I've used time for my own creation. I am created out of time through the use of the word. And so time then arises alongside. And now I'm governed by the very laws that I've created through the use of the word. I'm now susceptible to old age, sickness, and death. I find that interesting. (laughs) So let's look at a couple of Dharma languages and see what laws we are creating through the use of those languages. Because when we get fixed upon any set of Dharma languages, certain laws arise and we're held to those laws as long as we're fixed and conclusively believe that that language is right. So let's look at the language of change. The language of change. The language of change is all about time, isn't it? So if we're going to use the language of change, we have to assume the validity and reality of time. I am changing to something over time. And when we bring our spiritual practice into that particular conceptual reality, then I am growing over time, spiritually. And we have a whole set of ways to make that be perceived as true. We can see where we were 
10 years ago or 10 months ago or 10 days ago. And we can see improvement, measurement from those places. The qualities of mind or heart, we can see or perceive that they have changed in accordance with that. (laughs) It's so interesting. This whole thing is mind-created. The Buddha said, the entire world is birthed from this fathom-long body. That expression always stayed with me because I don't think he was just being demonstrative or exaggerating. I think he really meant. And lo, as I began to just welcome in what that possibly could mean, I see that we are bound by the assumptions we have made. But it has created the reality, the absolute, yes, there's time. Don't tell me there's not time. The clock's ticking, my heart's ticking, I'm getting older. Take a picture of me ten years ago, take a picture of me every day. It's completely conclusive. The laws are fixed because the assumption is fixed. Only because the assumption is fixed. And so there's a sense of going towards something in spiritual practice. I'm going towards something. I'm in movement towards. I'm becoming enlightened, awakened. And because it fits the reality we're in, we believe that that is the course of events. Then I can see myself changing. It fits the principles of Dharma, impermanence. We feel like we're, yeah, of course. I'm incomplete and I'm lacking. But look at the, look at what it implies, you see. Look at, because where it implies, it also implies incompletion. I'm incomplete now and I'm moving towards completion. Now, the problem with being incomplete now is that we'll pay no attention to now because it's incomplete. Why would I want to, why do I care about what I am now? I care about what I'm going to become because I'm becoming what I need to become in order to be complete. And therefore, I don't really care about now. Not in the language of time. I don't care about it. And so as long as we practice from a chronological base, to be honest, you can't care about now. Not if you're lost in time. You can't really care about it because it doesn't mean what... It's not fulfillment. It's not contentment. It never will be. Because the whole thing is based on measurement of getting out of now into the future where the payoff will, will be. This isn't it, we say. This isn't it yet. It's not it yet. And it also keeps us from accommodating our imperfections because the imperfection is going to change as I work on these imperfections. So I don't really have to notice my imperfections or even love them because I'm I'm stepping out of them into a new pair of clothes. And this particular language promises wisdom and freedom in the future. In fact, we promise it way in the future. (laughs) 
lifetimes. You have lived more lifetimes than the tears you have shed of the great oceans of the world, said the Buddha. Jesus, I don't have a chance. (laughs) And so all of this works as long as we focus on qualities. Qualities, measurement qualities within us. Where it stops working is when we come into the deeper aspects of Buddhism, such as emptiness, selflessness, and suchness. Because those qualities are dead stop. They're, They're not evolving. Emptiness doesn't evolve. Selflessness doesn't evolve. Suchness doesn't evolve. Suchness is just suchness. So all of a sudden we get very confused because eventually our practice leads us so that we begin to perceive the end of that language of time. If we're willing to move with insight, and the Buddha said somebody who's not willing to move with what the mind is showing them in insight is like an incompetent cook. An incompetent cook is somebody who doesn't listen to what the uh, owner of the house wants. He just or she just cooks anything at all. And and, uh, you want this? I'm going to cook this. And soon they're fired. So if we're if we don't listen to the if we don't listen to the messages of our practice, if we don't allow insight to inform if we don't allow our minds to inform us as to how to proceed, we're incompetent. We're being incompetent cooks. And at some point, the language of change becomes a feedback so that we can either be incompetent cooks or competent cooks. We awaken out of time. But the reality of it seems so, we're so transfixed within it that it feels so real to us. And the laws seem so true. What about death? What about birth? What about all of the aging? What about all of that? The here and now is being negated, but never mind. And so insights begin to show us because insights come from dead stop. And so we begin through insight to see the limitation of the language we're using. And they begin to to show us insightfully selflessness, suchness, emptiness. But we've we've given so much momentum and so much credence to this sense of time that we're loath to step out of it. 
we're resistant to that. We love the thought of someone going somewhere. That only an entity in time can be. And as time is frozen into a language, there has to be an entity, a substantial entity that's freezing it. And the x-axis is secure. The x-axis of thought and time is secure. But then, because of these insights, some of us begin to think that maybe there's a limitation to the language we use. Maybe, and we're here across the aisle from other traditions perhaps, the language of immediacy. Now the language of immediacy is a language of now now and only now. It gives things like it says natural radiance of mind, the kingdom within, the Buddha nature, where there's nowhere we're going and nothing we need to do to get there. We're already there, says the language of immediacy. And from the language of time, we look at the language of immediacy and we say, you know, that sounds great, but I feel like I'm a half-cooked here. I feel half-cooked. So this language of immediacy, now is all, now is all. But all of a sudden we begin to perceive some pitfalls in this language of immediacy because it's a new set of language and therefore a fixed relationship to reality. We've just moved across the other end of the paradox, haven't we? Those two paradoxes can't sit side by side. You've got to choose one or the other, don't you? So now we've moved from the language of evolution to the language of immediacy. And the language of immediacy has a nobility and I'm higher. It's a higher language, isn't it? It's the Mahayana language. (laughs) But because it's a fixed paradox, we have now chosen light to be a wave instead of a particle. So what are some of the limitations now of this language? Well, some things do have to change, don't they? And parts of us do need cultivation, don't they? If you take somebody off the street and say, you're enlightened, they'd say, thank you very much, and they would go on and... Yeah? And character does need to be developed. And from the language of immediacy, if everything is empty and anatta, I have no responsibility for you. I can do anything I want, can I? I can create all kinds of havoc. 
Because it's all illusion, it's all empty. Who cares how unethical I am? And we see some people going to that language immediately to get out of the grief and guilt and shame that the other language seemed to they'd be they were dragging along with them in the other language. And thank God now I can step out of my pain once and for all in this language of immediacy. And now I don't have to try. Because if it's already here, I don't have to do a thing. Put my feet up. Watch TV. <coughs> and talk. Learn the language and then talk from it. Feel very uplifted without any responsibility at all. Trapped within the language. Trapped within the language. The Dalai Lama was, was once asked <clears throat> a question. He said, why do you spend so much time talking about kindness, which is a quality, an evolutionary changing quality, instead of emptiness, immediacy, suchness? He says, because kindness is safer. I would rather meet an ethically driven, time driven meditator, ethically driven time, than somebody who's lost in emptiness and feels no responsibility for ethics whatsoever within that emptiness. But it's conclusive. If you see from emptiness, which if you stay on this, path long enough, you will. It is as conclusive and as certain and as absolute and as defining and as a sh just certainty as the language of evolution ever was. And it feels, as I mentioned, more noble, higher, when you can see all the people still operating under that other law. And we have just switched paradoxes. But we have not at all finished the journey. And I think very few people, it's very few people who don't get caught up in one side of the paradox only to move to the other side and get caught up there. Very few people. And how long you get caught up is dependent upon other factors, but one main factor is the sincerity of being able to look at the pain associated with being caught up anywhere. And so you see the y-axis, the y-axis, the x-axis of thought and the y-axis of emptiness, of suchness, selflessness, we can start thinking and fixating upon that and then it extends beyond itself, upward. 
with rules and laws all of its own. How do we live with life as a paradox? How do we live with the fact that light is both a particle and a wave? That there is both emptiness and fullness? (coughs) That there is both something to do and nothing to do? There is both time and the timeless. How do we live with that? There is a point of intersection called the zero point on any graph that is neither a part of the x-axis nor a part of the y-axis, but paradoxically it is a part of both. So that's where we go. To the zero point of those two axi. Where nothing is where nothing is fixed within the language of either the vertical or the Y or the X in longevity. Nothing is fixed. No distinction is made at all about time or about timelessness. Nothing is asserted, nothing is promoted. Nothing is established. Nothing is created. We reside at the zero point. And the two ends of the paradox meet in the middle. It is only when the word, any word, along either x-axis or y-axis is asserted that there is even a x and y axis of dimension. In the word, uh, when it's asserted, then then we have multi-dimensions. Through the use of one word, one assertion, one fixed certainty, one established view. How do we live in the world of paradox? Is that we abide at the zero point. where nothing is asserted. The Buddha said, however one can conceive, the truth is other than that. He said it in one sentence. I take 45 minutes. (laughs) However one conceives of reality, the truth is other than that. It cannot be conceived. And to conceive it is to pit ourselves against its opposite, which can never be reconciled. Never. And we spend so much time trying to organize intellectually the paradoxes that can never come together. Light 
comes together perfectly in itself. But forever is in disarray in the mind attempting to understand how it could be a particle and a wave simultaneously. It can never come together in the mind, but it comes together perfectly by turning turning on a lamp. Reality is much faster, much more vast, much more wondrous than we can conceive it to be in however way we conceive it. And the willingness to release the need to conceive it is to find our true home. In stillness. Where we don't worry. It's not, where is there a problem? Because at the zero point, where we are in the world, but not of the world. That's the zero point. There is both the simultaneity of emptiness and fullness. Simultaneously. Can't be, yes, just don't say it. Don't express it. Don't make it a view. Don't assert it. Live it. Abide it. Simultaneously. Emptiness and substance nothingness and everything, timeless in time, wave and particle. This is the final freedom. With the beautiful an exquisite universe have it any other way. Isn't it absolutely so awesome that we have to shut up in order to appreciate it? We have to shut up in order to appreciate it. And then we can live in it. We can become from it. but we will never grasp it as an object of thought. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.